0: are extraordinarily profitable companies. We're talking about companies that generate literally tens of billions of dollars in profits, and they're not sharing them with the writers. They're not sharing them with anybody else in the business either.
1: This interesting uh, word that applies to so many things, it applies to color, it applies to sound, it applies to light, it applies to the feeling of a conversation. Um, And I do think all of those qualities almost literally and figuratively go into the notion of how we establish tone on screen.
2: Wherever you are on the scale of educating, we are all in this together and find your voice and let America know that you are adding something great and wonderful every day in America when you educate and take care of the minds our greatest resource our children i got your back i love you i feel you and i am in the role of a lifetime
3: this was really a wake-up call especially to the korean immigrant community who were just shocked that those that were supposed to be protecting and serving the people abandoned these neighborhoods and instead set up blockades to protect beverly hills When
4: the masters started hearing word of these unions being formed and they actually set up all of these charges for these six men, tried them, convicted them, and sent them to Australia.
5: You're listening to the Labour Radio Podcast Weekly. I'm Chris Garlock. With a television writer's strike now in its third week, We'll hear today from Writers Guild of America East Executive Director Lowell Patterson on the Union Strong podcast. Then, on the Director's Cut, the podcast from the Directors Guild of America, a fascinating look inside movie making from a stellar panel of directors. Actor Cheryl Lee Ralph, star of Abbott Elementary, celebrates Teacher Appreciation Week on Union Talk, the podcast from the American Federation of Teachers. Working class Los Angeles before and after the civil unrest of 1992, the belabored podcast explores how structural inequities continue to shape the city's labor struggles from the classrooms to the docks. And in our final segment, the Valley Labor Report visits with the cast of a musical, about labor struggles in England in the 1800s. That's all ahead on this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show.
6: Welcome to the 100th episode of the Union Strong podcast. For the New York State AFL-CIO, I'm Darcy Wells, and this is Union Strong.
5: I'm proud.
6: I'm proud. I am proud. I'm proud to be Union Strong. To be Union
7: Strong.
8: To be Union Strong. To be Union Strong.
7: I'm a teacher, and I'm Union Strong.
9: I wouldn't have it any other way.
6: For the 100th episode, we looked around to see what was happening right now in the union movement. And what's happening is the biggest strike in Hollywood in 15 years. The Writers Guild of America, East and West, are out on strike. 11,500 members on the picket line. On this podcast, we're going to talk to the executive director of the Writers Guild of America East, Lowell Peterson, about why they're out on the picket lines and what's next. But first, to commemorate the 100th episode of the Union Strong podcast, and to look to the future of how to keep us Union Strong, is the president of the New York State AFL-CIO, Mario Salento.
10: I think that's really why we began this show in the first place, was to get as much information out to our members and the general public as possible. And we, as you recall, Darcy, we were looking, for, we were exploring different methods and ways to make sure that Labor's message was heard. And at that point in time, four years ago, Uh, I thought we started to really blaze a trail here in the state for our affiliates to also look at this and look down the path of having podcasts and just new and exciting ways to to reach your members in their homes or wherever they are. I know that I have uh, affiliate members come up to us and tell us, uh, come up to me. Mm -hmm. And just say, hey, we listen to the podcast. Or we've had some people, as you know, some board members come up and say, we'd like to be on the podcast. We have issues we want to talk about. Mm -hmm. So that means people are talking about it. It means that our members are talking about it. It means that labor leaders are talking about it. It means that elected officials know that it's out there as
6: well. Joining me on the podcast now is the executive director of the Writers Guild of America East, Lowell Peterson. Lowell, thank you for joining me today.
0: Thanks so much for having me.
6: And welcome back to the Union Strong podcast. Uh, We last spoke three years ago now. We were talking about the television diversity uh, tax credit, and now we're talking about a strike, a historic strike. Um, So I wanted to get right into it because I think that you were actually out on a picket line uh, earlier today, right?
0: Oh, yeah. I'm out uh, as many many hours a day as I can possibly uh, do, and I've got members out there longer than I do, so I'm, I'm inspired by that.
6: I bet you are. So let's talk about how you got here, because whenever we talk about the decision to go out on strike, to walk the picket line, that's a major decision. It's not one that's taken lightly. But I know that you had overwhelming support from your members. So can you talk about how you got to this point today?
0: Yeah, well, you know, we've been preparing for these negotiations for quite a long time because the members have been telling us something is broken in this Job Something is broken for television and movie writers. And when I say television and movie writers, I include the people who write stuff that you watch on the streaming services like Netflix. And in fact, some of what is broken is because the industry has invested billions of dollars to remake itself as basically a bunch of streaming services, video on demand, uh, shows on demand, uh, shorter seasons of television, uh, shorter periods of employment, uh, pay rates, Falling. literally TV writers have seen a decline in pay relative to inflation of about almost 25% over the, in the past ten years so that that's crazy because the profits of the studios are are skyrocketing I mean they these are extraordinarily profitable companies I, I'm sure they have ups and downs but uh, we're talking about companies that generate literally tens of billions of dollars in profits and they're not sharing them with the writers they're not sharing them with Anybody else in the business either?
6: In closing, um, you, you mentioned the solidarity. Anybody watching this or listening, what can people do to just really keep expanding the support? How can they help?
0: Well, there's a couple things. One is that people are welcome to join our picket lines. You can go to our website, uh, wgaeast.org, and there's a link that'll click. You, you just click on it. And they'll tell you where to show up. We're out every day, all day. Uh, Right now, the pickets are mostly in the five boroughs, Brooklyn, Queens, and Manhattan. Well, the Bronx. Uh, we'll have some upstate. We'll have some in New Jersey. We'll have some on Long Island. So picket line is welcome. We're going to have some rallies. I hope people can turn out for the rallies. And, you know, listen, let your, let your elected reps know that you support the writers, too. This
6: has been a production of the New York State AFL-CIO. Our president is Mario Salento. Our secretary-treasurer is Terry Melvin.
1: and i started to think like this is the this is the work of life is negotiating the sense of grim comedy and then the sense of what's actually really happening that's so much harder to negotiate and deal with and feel and i think that's something that funnily enough is a thread in all of our work
11: And welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. This episode, we're bringing you an exclusive panel discussion, creating and talking tone with your team. Last month, directors Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Ferris, Karn Kusama, and David O. Russell met to discuss techniques for determining and subsequently communicating the ever-elusive but critical aspect of tone in a conversation moderated by director Valerie Weiss. Let's just talk a little bit about what is tone.
1: I mean, it's it's funny because I think before this panel, I had to think about that, and it is this interesting uh, word that applies to so many things. It applies to color, it applies to sound, it applies to light, it applies to the feeling of a conversation. Um, and I do think all of those qualities almost literally and figuratively go into the notion of how we establish tone on screen. You know, it it literally color, light, sound, feeling, pace, all of those things. Great, thank you, anyone
2: else? Uh, I was gonna say just I think one thing that sort of determines or starts where we start with tone for the two of us is probably the humor, like we usually if we tap into the humor of something, that's usually, if we get that right, or that's the thing that we tend to agree on, like if something makes us laugh or if it's funny.
1: I think something we all share as filmmakers, in my opinion, is an interest in and an embrace of um, what I would call a, a messier approach to tone in that there's huge dynamic, fluctuations in the tonal gestures of each and every film to some degree. Whereas I do think there could be filmmakers up here who command an incredible purity of tone and that is itself an incredible direction to take. Probably one of the biggest challenges I ever had in shooting, which was a sequence in Jennifer's body in which Megan Fox's character kind of tells the origin story of her demonic possession and essentially recounts the story of being sacrificed um, in the name of a lame indie rock band's ambition for fame. And so it's already a absurd situation. And shooting it, um, though on the page, it would be very easy to say this is obviously absurd. Um, While I had a real human, presumably tied to a rock, um, surrounded by, by men. Um, I was extremely aware of the, uh, the nature of what that looked like and the terror of it. And when you're shooting, you have so many people standing by, ready to, to kind of come in and do the work they need to do. And hair and makeup is a big part of that. And they were standing by, and I realized no, you can't go in and retouch. We can't, that's not what this scene is. The more she cries, the more the mascara runs, the more her face becomes a, a mask of genuine, abject terror, the more the scene is working because the scene has to make a shift from we're laughing, we're laughing, we're feeling the absurdity, and then we stop feeling it.
11: The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America.
2: Wherever you are on the scale of educating... You, we are all in this together and find your voice and let America know that you are adding something great and wonderful every day in America when you educate and take care of the minds, our greatest resource, our children. I got your back. I love you. I feel you. And I am in the role of my lifetime, Mrs. Barbara Howard on Abbott. Elementary. I get you. I appreciate you. I thank you.
7: It's important to be part of a union because you have to have a voice. Welcome to Union Talk. I'm Randy Weingarten. We have Cheryl Lee Ralph on this Teacher Appreciation Week talking to Union Talk. So Cheryl Lee,
2: thank you so much
7: for being here.
2: Oh, thank you. Thank you very much, Randy. Good to be here with you and to be able to talk about one of my favorite subjects, education educators. How about that?
7: Thank you. So you are currently playing an elementary school teacher um, in Abbott Elementary. And we know the show is named after one of Quinta Brunson's elementary school teachers back in Philadelphia,
2: And which so, I don't know is any better way to show teacher appreciation. It's like, hey, I'm going to have a television show, and I'm going to name it after a teacher that I really loved who made a difference for me. That's exactly. teacher appreciation. Yes.
7: What is it like to play? Um, what's it like to play a teacher?
2: Oh, for me, it's great. But it's a very interesting thing. You know, we're literally on a set and we're all acting and doing our jobs. And we're acting with children. And these children are so good, so bright, so smart. It's wonderful to be around them. You know, they say don't act with animals or children. And in this case, these children are so wonderful. I can't imagine not working with them But the fact that sometimes they think I'm their teacher. Wow. One day we were there and one of the boys, he's just a bright, shining little light. And he was so sad in the classroom. And I said, what's wrong? And he said, my grandfather died this weekend. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry. And I gave him a hug. Then all of the kids came together to join in the hug. Wow. And we all hugged. The camera's running now because we're working. Yeah. We all hugged. And then when it was over, he said, okay, I'm fine now. And we just <laughs> finished the scene. Oh, my God. So it's, it's those moments that make me enjoy Acting as a teacher on TV, what I get to experience.
7: It's like life imitating art and art imitating life and all of it together, which is so amazing. Yes. So, so you know, I'm just going to riff off what you just said because a big part of teaching is showing kids the art of what is possible. Oh, God. And yes. That moment. Is like the possibility of, you know, of of creating safety and a welcome environment for a kid who's really sad. And all of you, you know, by the group hug, the collective hug, it's, you know, the relational aspects of what teaching is and what, you know, schooling is. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Union Talk. Remember to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast and tune in every other week for a new episode. Thank you. Be safe and be well.
5: To Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen.
1: Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to Belabored, episode 265. Today, we're taking a deep dive into the last few decades of labor history in Los Angeles and how that built the power that we recently saw on display with a massive strike of school workers, a strike that won some very impressive gains, particularly for the lowest paid in the LA Unified School District. In
11: this episode, we will talk about working-class Los Angeles before and after 1992 and how the city's labor movement reflects and grapples with the scars of historical injustice. We revisit the events of 92 with Tobias Higby, Associate Director of the UCLA Institute for Research on Labor and Employment, and Kent Wong, Director of the UCLA Labor Center, to discuss how the city's structural inequities continue to shape its labor struggles in many sectors, from the classrooms to the docks.
9: Toby Higby, I'm a historian at UCLA. The 20 years previous to the civil unrest, Los Angeles had undergone an a remarkable and remarkably negative industrial transformation. Lots of cities in the United States experienced plant closures and and job loss. It was particularly intensive in Los Angeles. You know, we don't think of LA as, as an industrial city. I think often because it's tourist and Hollywood image presents an image of leisure, but there were major manufacturing facilities here General Motors, Ford, all the uh, major automobile companies, steel makers, tire and rubber plant. And most of those, especially the largest national corporations were unionized, highly unionized with great, you know, relatively good pay and benefits that stabilized middle class communities. Beginning in the mid-1970s, those plants started to shut down as capital was moving out of Southern California, uh, sometimes to low-wage parts of the United States, sometimes to Mexico, sometimes to Asia, and particularly in the period from 1978 through 88, those 10 years, thousands and thousands of jobs were lost in Los Angeles. And because L.A. remains, but at that time was especially a highly segregated city, it really mattered where the plants were shutting down. So there were major unionized employers closing down in the heart of the African-American community in South Central L.A. Uh, General Motors, Southgate, Firestone, Goodyear, other steel plants, etc., which just meant that the opportunity for people to make a living was disappearing. Those jobs were being either not replaced, so high levels of unemployment, or being replaced by low-wage and exploitive non-union industrial and service jobs. There was, at the same time, a pretty significant wave of immigration coming especially from Latin America and an intensification of policing associated with the drug war. So those sorts of combinations of things were particularly pronounced here in Los Angeles.
11: Can you talk about how urban life was shaped by the presence of law enforcement and the criminal legal system and how working class life was was impacted by that, not just in terms of basic sort of landscape of public safety for people, but how it affected people's stability and sense of security in other arenas of life?
3: The Los Angeles Police Department had a long history of abusive practices that in particular targeted black and brown communities of Los Angeles. And that the beating of Rodney King was extraordinary only in the sense that it was captured on videotape. But in terms of that dynamic and that experience, it was very much something that was a common occurrence for black and brown young men here in Los Angeles. And what was so telling about the 1992 civil unrest is that after the burning began, after the massive property destruction, loss of human life, all of the targeted burning and violence that occurred in the streets of Los Angeles, the LA Police Department completely abandoned the South and South Central area and stationed these barriers and blockades to protect the white and affluent neighborhoods. So this was really a wake-up call, especially to the Korean immigrant community who had less experience and grounding in the history of the LAPD with regard to its treatment of communities of color, but were just shocked that those that were supposed to be protecting and serving the people abandoned these neighborhoods and instead, set up blockades to protect Beverly Hills, to protect Bel Air, to protect Santa Monica, and basically allowed the burning to take place without interference.
5: You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored. Our final segment this week comes from the Valley Labor Report, a weekly talk show airing Saturdays from 930 to 11 a.m. Eastern on WVNN 92.5 FM in Huntsville, Alabama, and from 8 a.m. to 930 a.m. Eastern Sundays on WGOL 920 a.m. in Russellville, Alabama. When
4: the masters started hearing word of these unions being formed and they actually set up all of these charges for these six men, tried them, convicted them, and sent them to Australia. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? This is from Toe Puddle, the musical.
8: Copado Six, you stand accused before this court for forcing a secret oath not authorized by law. It is a crime to force an oath that doth purport to keep a man from testifying what he swore. We will be free. Pope Otto Six, sit down and get used to those chains. We men of the jury are the laws you hope to cheat. No one can help you, only have yourself to blame. We have your friend and Edward lay here at our feet. We will be free. They knocked on my window round Christmas last. It was Brian and Hammett, that's when they asked if I'd come to Stanfield's house to join them both. That's where we swore that oath. Gave me a blindfold so I couldn't look At who made me swear as I kissed the good book My soul would be plunged to eternity If I broke my secrecy We will be free Was it James Loveless that cajoled you in this way? Please take a moment to consider what you say
6: I think it could have been
8: I speak for Stanfield, Hammerton, and Brine And note how this crime is defined Is meant to prevent planning mutiny Not this friendly society I speak for the other three tall puddle men You accuse of seditious intent collect a few bob for those who could lose their job To stop their starvation Can you prove our intention? Counters this statement Men of the jury, now it's time you must agree Was there an oath that bound these men to secrecy? The rest is irrelevant, so please don't be confused How do you find these men of what they are accused? Topol of Six, I have considered your defence, that no one was harmed and that you meant no ill intent. But as an example to all other working men, you'll serve seven years of transportation starting hence. We raise the watchword liberty We will We will be free. We raise the watchword Part of six, you face a sentence worse than death, if you survive the journey you'll resent your breath, be an example to the nation's working men, those who think to organise will have to think again, of six, you face a sentence worse than death, if you survive the journey you'll resent your breath, be an example to the nation's working men, those need to organize will have to think again. When we raise the watchword liberty. We will, we
4: will be free. I'm Ryan Thornhill. I'm actually a London-based director who uh, flew in to work on this project um, here in Alabama. I'm also the, the festival director for the Alabama International Fringe Festival, which is happening next weekend and what Tollpuddle was performing as part of. Um, And Toll Puddle tells the story of these six martyrs, the the, the Toll Puddle martyrs from the south of England who um, wanted to create a union because they were being treated unfairly by their landowning masters, as they call them. Um, And they wanted to start a union. And and when the masters started hearing word of these unions being formed and and things like that, they actually set up all of these charges for these six men. tried them, convicted them, and sent them to Australia to work as um, field masters as well as part of the conviction.
5: That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Just a small sample of the amazing programs aired last week on more than 100 labor radio and podcast shows. They're all part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, shows that focus on working people's issues and concerns. We've got links to all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org. You can also find them, use the hashtag LaborRadioPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited this week by Patrick Dixon and me. I produce the show, and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. For the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this has been Chris Garlock. Stay active and stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show. See you next week.